Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. And I'm Simon. We're Native in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to hopefully get actual value from technology. This is episode 148, recorded on April the 20th, 2021. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on nadeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. And today, as always, we have a very, very full episode where we'll start where we started the last time. And uh, Alexander will get us through the topic of data ops, which I'm really looking forward to. After that, we will continue with a lot of Power BI news as well as object-level security that's now reached general availability in Power BI. We have a new purchase or acquisition by Microsoft, news in Intune, including a new recommended framework for settings for iOS, a bunch of new Microsoft hardware, so I'm very excited, of course. And lastly, we'll talk about Microsoft Defender for Endpoint and how you can protect unmanaged devices. Awesome. Let's let's dive into let's dive into data ops. And as you said, we we had a discussion last week since we both read the book The Phoenix Project. And I decided to dive into The Unicorn Project, which is not necessarily a um, a um, a follow-up because that book a couple of years later, it it depicts the exact same uh situation. It's it's the same project just from another viewpoint. It's from the mm-hmm. viewpoint of the developers. And I haven't spent very uh, much time with developers, but it was a huge eye-opener for me. Uh, really, really interesting. So I highly recommend you read the Unicorn Project as well. But data ops, what isn't data ops? Well, data ops is not DevOps for data because it's just a part of what makes up data ops. Data ops is, is, well, there are three parts, basically. It's agile, it's DevOps, and it is some practices from Lean. The whole idea with data ops is to, as with DevOps, basically, it's to reduce the end-to-end cycle time of analytics. Well, DevOps doesn't do that, but the, um, the point is to go from an origin of an idea to creation of charts, graphs, and models that create value. And the data lifecycle replies both on tools and people, people in, in a bigger uh, amount than with traditional DevOps, if you will. So as, as DevOps, you, you can draw out DevOps as this never-ending loop. It's it's kind of an infinity symbol, really. Uh, data ops does not work that way because data ops, we're adding one thing to the mix. And that is the fact that we have a lot of data. We don't only have code and we don't only have artifacts as in a normal DevOps pipeline. We also have data coming in and we need to do things to this data. So instead of this infinity symbol, if you will, we generally draw it out as a T, where we have two distinct pipelines going into each other and, and producing value all the way to, to the right. So data continuously enters on one side of the pipeline, it progresses through a series of steps, and it exits in the shape of reports, models, and, and views ready for consumption. That 
that is the data pipeline and it's kind of the operations side of data analytics. And you can conceptualize it as a, a manufacturing line where quality, efficiency constraints and uptime must be managed. It's, it's also called the data factory, but it's not the Azure data factory. So don't, don't confuse this with the, the actual product. Uh, the um, other side of things, well, that's where you add value and you, you add, add work to the, the artifacts. And I'm going to come back to the other pipeline, which is called the innovation pipeline in, in just a bit. One thing that differs between DevOps and data ops is that we're using something called statistical process control, SPC, which is taken straight out of a page from, from lean, uh, lean manufacturing. SPC is, is well, it's, it's basically automated tests. So it's not at all uncommon for a developer to understand what an automated test is. It's, it's kind of sort of the same thing, but here we are looking at the data, the data pipeline. So we are looking at the data and making sure that the, the, the content, not the code, but the content remains within acceptable ranges. This is extremely powerful and also extremely difficult to do without automated tools. Just consider that you're looking at terabytes of data every night from manufacturing plants or what it may be. It is impossible for a human to keep track of all this data and make sure that everything is okay. You don't have any quality issues and that kind of stuff. So that's where the statistical process control comes into play. In short, DataOps is a set of technical practices, cultural norms, and architectures that enable you to do rapid experimentation, you have low error rates, you do clear measurement and monitoring of the results, and you also uh, really go for um, collaboration, both across technology, technolo uh, technology, people, and, and uh, environments. DevOps was created to serve the need of the software developers. And developer engineers, well, they like coding and they embrace. Well, that's Australian for embrace. Embrace. <laughs> they embrace technology. And the requirement to learn a new language or deploy a new tool, well, that's just fun. It's not a hassle. And they take a professional interest in all the minute details of <laughs> code creation, integration, and, and deployment. In, in a lot of ways, DevOps embraces complexity. Data ops, well, the data ops users are most often the opposite of that. They are data scientists or they're, they're analysts that are focused on building and deploying data models and visualizations. And most of the time, scientists and analysts are not as technically savvy as engineer, engineers. They, they focus on domain expertise they, they play in their area basically and that's why we again come back to the the, the other way of uh, illustrating the devops or the the, the data ops life cycle well the devops life cycle is the um, the infinite symbol the data ops life cycle have a t shape so we have the data factory that we discussed above we also have the other pipeline, which governs how the data factory is updated. The creation of deployment of new analytics into the data pipeline. 
So the data factory takes raw data sources as input and through a step, a number of orchestrated steps create analytic insights. That creates, hopefully creates value for the organization. That's the, the value pipeline or the, the, the data factory. This is automated, as we said before, with SPC or statistical process control. We have monitoring and all that funky stuff. The innovation pipeline, that's the process by which new analytic ideas are um, introduced into the value pipeline. So we are now adding ways of, of changing what the data looks like. We're not changing the data, but we're changing what we can do with it. And the innovation pipeline conceptually resembles a DevOps development pipeline or, or a process, but there are several factors that make it quite different and, and in many ways more challenging because you're going to find that you have a, a, a kind of a duality both in orchestration and in testing because you have two different pipelines that intersect and you can do orchestration at multiple points in this pipeline and you can do testing in multiple places because you can test the data that's one pipeline you can test whatever you do to it as you go along with the innovation pipeline. And I mean, the, the data that flows through the value pipeline, that's going to be variable and, and subject to statistical process control. That's one thing. Tests are going to target the data, which is again, continuously changing. Analytics in the value pipeline, on the other hand, they're fixed and change only using a formal release process. And in the value pipeline, analytics are revision controlled to minimize any disruptions in service that could affect the data factory. In the innovation pipeline, it's the other way around because the code is variable, but the data is fixed. The analytics are revised and updated until complete. And once the sandbox is set up, well, the data doesn't usually change. That's another very big difference between DevOps and data ops. As, as a DevOps engineer, you're probably going to spin up your own environment and, and do tests on and, and work on. That's all fine and well, but it's a smaller part. In the case of DataOps, your sandbox is probably going to be representative of the entire data set. So it's a much larger uh, environment that you work in. And, and in many ways, you have uh, kind of a silo going on because my sandbox is my sandbox and your sandbox is your sandbox and you're not going to take your toys and put them into my sandbox, please. So another interesting thing that happens when we start to look at this is the fact that there's so many tools and languages and God knows what in data ops. We want to take this to a minimum, but in practice, we can't. Because say that you need to do a specific statistical um, anal analysis on a specific set of data, you're, you're limited to a number of, say, for instance, packages in Python. You can't just go, no, I don't like this package. Well, sucks to be you. You need to do this specific analysis. You need to use this package. And yes, you need to learn that package. So there are so many disparate tools that you most often don't have uh, the use for in, in a DevOps environment, for instance. So in many ways, data ops is 
more about the concepts than the actual tooling. You can get away with a lot more tooling in DevOps than you can do in, in data ops. But there are data ops platforms that you can buy and that do a lot of these things for you. They are not cheap, but they, they are pretty powerful. And when it comes to available tools in Power BI, for instance, well, there are not that much available, depending on how you look at it. The most obvious thing that we have available in Power BI is the um, deployment pipelines. And this is just the beginning of what deployment pipelines can do. We, we're, we have a long, long way to go until we have a proper versioning deployment pipeline system. But what they have, uh, the, the amazing people in Israel have built so far, it is fantastic. Again, it is just very crude because it's so young. And Power BI has a horrible data format due to the, the, the PBIX file. But another aspect of data ops is the citizen data scientist. Just like DevOps embraces fail fast, you want to do the same thing with data. And how do you do that with data? Well, you do self-service BI. And the citizen data scientist is all about anyone can get access to data and anyone can do analysis on that data and hopefully create value for the company at the end of the day. And how do you do this? Well, Power BI is the perfect citizen data scientist and, and um, self-service BI tool because it is fantastic at quickly coming up with insights of creating value from disparate data sources. And then when you have your idea, you've tested it out and it sort of pans out, well, then you can take the entire whole thing to the data ops people or the, the, the IT uh, department and go, right, we want to incorporate this into the um, data pipeline. And that's where you add this basically into the innovation pipeline and create new uh, visuals and new, new dashboards and what, whatnot. So in that way, Power BI is a fantastic tool for this. It is not the only tool, but it is a very, very useful tool if you were to implement data ops in your environment. There are seven steps for data ops, and there is also the data ops manifesto that I highly recommend you to read and if you so desire, sign. But the seven steps are basically... You need to add automated monitoring and tests. You need to use a version control system. You need to figure out how to do branch and merge. You definitely need to use multiple environments. Reuse and containerize everything you see. Parameterize your processing, which is, again, pretty close to DevOps. And as always, work without fear. So this, this is combining both tools and uh, concepts. And as, as Simon will learn when he reads the Unicorn Project, there are five ideals. One of these ideals is to be able to work without fear. And I leave it to him to read that and come up with, with ideas and, and questions for, for an upcoming episode. And now I will work without fear. Because I think this is possibly where we ha are disagreeing at never-before-seen lengths. Oh, really? Okay, now I will 
get the entire data platform community against me. This is marketing bullshit. <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. This is so where where you're going to find that DevOps is rare. Really, DevOps is not that spread. It's a fantastic idea, and nobody that reads DevOps can think of any reasonable reason for not using DevOps. But it, it's very rare. Data ops is even more rare. Yeah, yeah, but 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 I I have a ton of questions. All right, <laughs> and we won't have time to go through them all. But I, I just. Why? So you say that a lot of the things you're describing is different from DevOps or works in another way. No. No. Let me stop you right there. It's not different from it. it, it it's different too in the way that if you think that data ops is just DevOps for data, then you're up shit creek without a paddle. <laughs> But to me, because when you and and sorry, I I was searching for a suitable headline <laughs> for this episode. Data ops is marketing bullshit. That would have drawn some attention. I can yes, tell you for sure. Uh, we we won't use that. It's up to you to use it. So I will probably get a trademark and a direct link with my phone number. Uh, but what you're describing as a difference, I don't see why it couldn't follow the same principle as I envision in my head when I think about DevOps. Why is it so important to have two pipelines? Isn't that just different parts of the pipeline or parallel tracks within the same pipeline? It's more like, and this is likely because I don't understand the data. I'm, I'm fairly good at infrastructure in general and, and whatever I work with. And I will likely have that mindset when I look at data. So I'm very intrigued in understanding why this would be such a big, doing air quotes here, difference. And then that, that is a great question. And you're you're hitting the nail on the head by your your perspective. You come from mm -hmm. the infrastructure side of things, which, to be fair, this sounds absolute gobbledygook. What is the problem? <laughs> yeah. The problem is that data is among the messiest, the foulest, the dirtiest, the shittiest things that you can ever get your hands on. The amount of work that it takes to go from a raw data source to a usable data set is staggering and even more so with specific kinds of data. So that's why you have one set of operations you need to make to or do to, to the data in order to just bring it from the, the sewage basically into the uh, refined drinkable form. But at the same time, you need to figure out how to consume this by creating visuals to creating um, reports and whatever you want to do to consume and to gain value from it. So that's why you have, well, you can look at it as two parallel tracks for sure. But the, the more you, you think of it, it's going to turn into a 
kind of intersecting T-shape because you have the data that just keeps flowing. But if you don't have any use for it, well, meh. So that's why the the value chain, uh, the, the innovation pipeline, sorry, comes as an intersect to intersect with new ideas, new applications for the data that flows by. So I think that if we just take out the the data factory part and look at the innovation pipeline, that is very, very close to what I think your, your view on a normal DevOps pipeline is. Okay, I think we, I would really like to have a, a longer discussion on this because I, I, don't don't get me wrong, like we have SecOps, we have DevOps, we have all kinds of ops. Ops, ops. Ops, ops as well. Um, and like one of the questions that array, like gets to my mind is, okay, but if we then take DevOps, should UX or UI be a separate pipeline? Because like you can claim, or let's say graphical elements on a web page or in an application. So it is just. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I totally get where you're, you're going uh, with this, but the difference in that would, I would argue is the complexity of the information. I, I don't intend mm -hmm. to belittle the no, graphical no, 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 no. stuff at all, but it is vastly more complex with a terabyte of data coming your way than uh, a, a nice GUI. But conceptually, yeah, sure, why not? Because, uh, yeah, I really would like to dig deeper into this to see if I actually, behold, can learn something. Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> Simon wants to learn something. Yeah, because, like, that that may be just as you remember the first Global Azure bootcamp we hosted where we had a discussion between the developers and the IT operations people. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm feeling that this may be one discussion that would aid people working with infra and working with data to understand the challenges I would say mostly for the infra or IT operations to understand the complexity of data more than the opposite. But like, it's intriguing. And I, I like, I have a bunch of questions. I was moving between being very like frustrated and intrigued uh, while you spoke. So I, I would really like to, to, do something with this because I would wasn't at all expecting you to have you and the data community obviously to have that kind of mindset and I would be very interested in learning more about it I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and say that the the biggest single uh, takeaway from DevOps isn't so much uh, the continuous integration and continuous delivery that's that's nice but the main takeaway is the fact that people are talking to each other mm -hmm. and understanding their differences in, in goals, in different needs and different challenges. And I'd, I'd say that that is the same thing with data ops, just yeah. getting in for people or ops people to realize what is the challenges that data people face and data mm -hmm. people need to figure out that not everybody face the same challenges. So no. we're not at all better than anybody else. No, no. We just have different tools and different challenges and talk to each other is the absolute takeaway.
Yeah, and, and the last bit, since I want the last word in this discussion, I think, Squirrel. That's, <laughs> I think that's also where what somewhat frustrated me, because to me, DevOps is solely a culture. I couldn't care less about the tooling. But that's that's because I don't code. Exactly. You don't code. And I think that in some ways you're you're trading on dangerous ground by mm-hmm. using your version of the DevOps truth. Mm-hmm. But I totally get what you're doing. And <laughs> as a, a reference framework and as as a conceptual framework to explain to people what you're thinking, it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But just be be aware of people knowing DevOps and and well, they might disagree with your your view on things. You're you're kind of doing what my wife refers to as lies to children. Yeah, I, I react I react their reality and substitute my own. <laughs> what he said. Shall we dive into the news because b- before we go completely off the rails for this one? Uh, uh, Ruby on Rails. I think that no. was a coding reference. <laughs> yes. Do you do you even know what Ruby is? <laughs> I have no clue. Okay, I'm not going to tell you either. So, the Power BI April update, the Power BI desktop April update is out, and there are a few huge things, and I, I cannot overstate huge. So the first one is the Power Automate visual which means it's it's in preview, which means that you can add a Power Automate flow inside of um, Power BI. So you can, for once, you've been able to sort of kind of do this previously, but now you can easily add a Power BI, uh, a Power Automate f- um, form, for instance, to, to input data and that kind of stuff. That's pretty darn cool. So is it only to inject data or could you take actions from a report as an example? Yes. Yeah, because that that was something we spoke about a lot of episodes ago when we had links, sure. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, th- this. Yeah. Oh, that's that's <laughs> yes. intriguing. Oh. Oh. And do keep in mind this is just in in uh, beta or it's in in preview, but it opens up so many mm-hmm. both opportunities and cans <laughs> of worm. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Exactly. You're starting to see the ramifications of this. It, it, it'll be interesting to see where we get it with this. But I'm I'm, I'm super curious. I, I'm I'm just I'm just seeing like patch management. Yeah, we have 25 percent of our devices that haven't rebooted. Let's do a power automate and forcefully reboot all our devices. It's official. I hate you, Simon. <laughs> Another thing we talked about last episode was the the report link sharing in the service. So you can generate a a, a shareable link just like with OneDrive. Now mm-hmm. that is actually in the service. It has been released. That was way faster than I thought it would be. And then comes something super cool. Have you heard about the charticulator? I have heard about it, and, and it's my favorite word of the week. It's a fantastic word, yes. The charticulator is what it used to be a s- separate service where you can create your own visual. If you wanted to have this super weird uh, solar spread something that you could not find in Power BI, well, you can create your own. And then you can just add it as a custom visual inside of a Power BI because all the visuals are based off JSON. The problem with that is there's so many people that don't 
touch third-party visuals with a 10-foot pole because they need to get uh, support for them and they, they need to have them uh, certified in their company and so on and so forth. So the Charticulator could have solved so many problems, but it was outside of people's reach. But not anymore. Because we now have the Charticulator visual. It is by Microsoft. It is inside of Power BI. And it's the same tool. So everything you could do previously in the Charticulator, you can do in the Charticulator visual. And the whole shebang gets embedded in your, your PBIX file, which is kind of awesome in my view. Mm -hmm. You with me so far? Absolutely. And I, I also think that you will have some really good examples to your... Um, um, Untruthful art? Exactly. <laughs> when people start yep, to make yep. their own visuals. <laughs> yeah, we, we're going to see a lot of, of bad ways of doing mm -hmm. this, but we're also going to see a lot of good ways. And together with another thing that I'm just about to talk about, we are stomping Tableau flat, mm -hmm. which I kind of enjoy. The other thing is Project Deneb. And Deneb is declarative visualization in Power BI. What the heck is that? Well, where the charticulator is all about clicky, clicky, draggy, draggy, to paraphrase Kristen Wade, uh, you're, you're creating your visual mainly by clicking and dragging and doing it visually. Deneb is based off code. And you're, you're writing code, not unlike what you have in, um, well, if you're doing it in R or in Python. So you can create your visuals through this uh, code editor. And again, it's, it's JSON. So this is absolutely super cool because it is so much easier to transfer. You can whip up a cool visual and then you can just post the JSON code for anyone to use. And there, there are a lot of really, really cool examples of what you can do with Deneb right now at the, the public preview. Is this ASCII art taken to the next level? That's a good question. Could you, well, I'm sure you could do ASCII art if you were so inclined. I'll leave that as, as an opportunity for the, the, the listeners. But, but just to ensure that I understand it, the main benefit is that you can get a coded visual. You can't yes. read it. So it, it's very sorry for this. I, I really am going to upset the data community. If you want a pie chart mm -hmm. that looks a certain way, you haven't yep. been able to really move that between environments previously, but now you will be able to write a pie chart in code that you would be able to transfer. Yes. That is rather cool. With, with all the bells and whistles and, and settings, yes. That is rather cool. Yep. Hmm. And while we're at it, I want to mention the PureVis infographic tool as well, because it's something as weird as a an animated Power BI visual. So say, for instance, like, like the example they have on their, their site, you have a wind turbine. Mm -hmm. Now you can have the wind turbine spin and visualize different things as it is spinning. Mm -hmm. That has not been possible. So it's, it's a really cool added feature to Power BI. It's called PureVis. 
And the final thing that I'll, I'll mention is the um, object level security, which is generally available in Power BI, by BI Premium and Pro. And that is a new, well, it's not that new. It enables model authors to secure sensitive tables or columns from report viewers. So if you have personally identifiable information, PII, well, you can just hide that. It, from, from the user's standpoint, it doesn't exist anymore. It gives you more security. Mm -hmm. And the only kind of a caveat at the moment, you cannot create OLS rules inside of Power BI Desktop. It can't be done. You need to use a third-party tool uh, that talk to the XML endpoint. But it's just one other example of how many fantastic things you can do to a Power BI model that you might not necessarily be able to do through Power BI Desktop. Mm -hmm. So let, let's continue on the, the data track and analytics track because Microsoft just made a small acquisition uh, of $19.7 billion dollars. Last That's week. even more than you make, right? Mm, just, just a tad more. But just a tad, okay. Exactly. Right. Mm. And um, when they purchased Nuance. And I've heard about Nuance Communication Inc. previously. And um, first I was, okay, why are they buying them? But what they do is quite extraordinary. And it's a huge push for the industry focuses that Microsoft do currently so they have a focus on manufacturing and this is for healthcare so nuance is have a couple of different tools or offerings where one is the ability to recognize uh, voice and transcribe where they are market leaders for healthcare so if you want to transcribe a journal you are likely using nuance so they will be incorporating that technology and they have been working with Microsoft for a very, very long time. They already are hosting a lot of their platforms on Azure, uh, but they will now be an integrated part of Microsoft and offer healthcare solutions as well as using the same kind of technology, of course, for other verticals as well. So it's AI with voice, especially that they are focused on. When you say journal, you're talking about the medical record. Uh, yeah, sorry. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. Medical records. So trans transcription that a doctor, for instance, would do. Yeah, exactly. And it's apparently used by uh, used in 77% of all U.S. hospitals. And uh, they have um, a rather good revenue. It's increased 37% year over year. I really need to figure out what stock to buy. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, so that's that's really cool, and we'll see how that goes. And I also kind of like this focus on specific verticals from Microsoft. I think that is value-adding, to say the least. Uh, let's then head into Intune, and especially Apple, because there have been a lot of new Apple announcements in terms of Microsoft Endpoint Manager and Intune over the last weeks. The main one, from a technical point of view, is that we now or Intune and macOS now support modern authentication with the Apple Setup Assistant. So up until now, we have been forced of getting a separate app. So you have to push the company portal to a MacBook to do a safe authentication when you enroll it. And it's been a rather cumbersome uh, enrollment process for the user. 
now with modern authentication so that it can support conditional access and so on. It's a much, much better enrollment experience uh, for the user with a new Mac OS device. And that also will uh, impact the iOS and iPad OS operating systems. But I would say the main benefit is the Mac OS where we have had some really tough scenarios that haven't been able to work at all or close to at all uh, before this were released. So um, very happy to see that. And from the tests that my customers already made, uh, they are very, very pleased. And it's a huge improvement. Awesome. Yep. Next up is something that I've been waiting for for years. You you are aware of the security baselines, right? For Windows yeah, Server yeah. And, and Windows 10 and so on. Now Microsoft released, they are not allowed to call it security baselines, but uh, the Enterprise Security Configuration Framework for iOS and iPadOS. So a Microsoft recommended baseline for how you should configure your iOS and iPadOS devices. So they are covering everything from how you should deploy them, what configuration profiles, compliance profiles, and how that differs between a personal device and a corporate device. So it's a very, very good first step for a lot of organizations that either are just getting started with Intune and um, management of Apple devices, or even better, I would say, for the organizations that already are using it and want to validate that they actually are secure. Huh. So something I really look forward to see for other operating systems moving forward as well. You and I have a preference when it comes to hardware, uh, I would say. I think you you are now agreeing with me. You haven't been too pleased with all of your surfaces over the years. And uh, officially, I've always been always been very, very pleased. So um, apart from my Surface headphones, but we'll get to that soon. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we now have a rather big group of hardware that just got released. The most spectacular of those is the new Surface Laptop 4, which it's it's not a revolution, I would say, but you are now, like what I absolutely like is that you now get more choices for in terms of CPUs. So you get Ryzen CPUs and Radeon graphics for uh, both the business and the consumer SKUs. So they are claiming that you will get a like I think they even mention a plus 50% performance increase over the current generation of Surface Laptop. Holy cow, that is a lot. Yeah, that's quite remarkable. But other than that, it, it's um, not really that much that differs. We still get it in 13 and a half inch and 15 inch. Um, it's a new camera, better low light capabilities, better microphones. But so on, and but in in practice, it's new chipsets from both AMD and Intel. Mm-hmm. And then we get a bunch of accessories to that. Um, again, most noticeable is the um, new Surface. Let's see if I get the name right for these. The Surface Surface Headphones Two Plus for business. <laughs> right. It, yeah. It's basically Surface headphones that are now Teams certified. That took a while. Took them long enough. (laughs) Exactly. So you now get a dedicated Teams button on the headphones and less battery time. (laughs) 
what? <laughs> Less battery time? Yeah, they're moving from 18 and a half hours of music to 15. Okay. And uh, based on my experience with the previous iterations, I haven't tested the second gen, only the first. That wasn't even close to what I was getting out of them. Hmm. But again, I, I think it's you need to have Teams certified Microsoft equipment. It's just... Yeah, you keep saying that. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't want to pay the $300 that you need to pay for the Surface headphones, you also have another headset, both a USB and a wireless headset, which uh, has a much lower price point of around $50, also Teams certified. So more similar to a regular like office headset. But it, hmm. it, it actually looks very, very good. So I, I would be interested in trying that out. Something well, I def- you're going to buy it anyways. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. Simon will buy it. Yeah. And speaking of that, if you buy the Surface laptop for now, you actually get a pair of Surface earbuds included. And that's both in the US and Sweden and other markets. So if huh. you, yeah, I haven't tried them, but apparently they are very comfortable and hideously, hideously looking. <laughs> Something that looks a lot better and that I will buy is the Microsoft Modern USB-C speaker. So it's basically a Teams-certified speaker. Uh, so a, a Teams speaker that you plug into your, your USB-C port when we are allowed to meet people again. So you can host your small meetings uh, without having headsets on. And it's uh, priced at $99.99 US dollars, that is. Which is rather good, I would say. So it's something I definitely will pick up and they look really good, I must say. Yeah, it's it's pretty decent, but I really, really don't like the modern webcam. <laughs> no, that that's it, Talk it, about a completely useless device. Yeah, I, I don't know why they shipped that. I have no clue. It, 1080p output, 30 FPS, USB A, and it doesn't include Windows Hello support. Yeah. I see no reason for this to exist at all, unless it is like they're cheap, which it isn't because it's $79.99. Bucks. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Like, I, I would say that Microsoft should deliver high quality things, but I, no, I, I have nothing. You're absolutely right. Somebody found a good deal on a lot of cameras in China and decided to, well, let's call it something, something surface and people will buy it. Not even Simon would buy this one. And that is saying a lot. Absolutely. We, we'll, we'll wait with my newest edition of hardware for a, a short period of time more. Speaking about hardware and the last news item of the day is a quite cool new feature that came straight out of the blue to me. One challenge with Microsoft Defender for Endpoint is of course that you need to manage the devices that you're monitoring, which makes sense, mm-hmm. but not anymore. Because we can now secure unmanaged devices with Defender for Endpoint. So you can get quite a lot of information out of a MAC address. And by speaking to the device that's on the same network as yourself. So what we now get is the ability, included in the price, to monitor and find devices that we haven't or aren't managing and get information back. So let's say that... You have two examples. First, the rather cool one. You are on the network 
and you discover that your device is the only out of 10 Windows devices on the same network that are managed and secured by Defender for Endpoint. That device will be able to reach out to the other ones and ping them and say, hey, who are you? And they will reply with some basic information. They That will enable Defender for Endpoint to say, okay, we have Windows devices with this version over here. They have these vulnerabilities. Would you like to manage them? And you can then, if you have the proper permissions, onboard them. So it's the discoverability. It's based on what you discover and the ability to get vulnerabilities from that operating system, as an example, and also being able to onboard them. And that is supported for unmanaged devices running any of the supported operating systems for Defender for Endpoint. But there's more, because you're also able to find network equipment. So you can use SNMP and find, I think it's Cisco, Aruba, Palo Alto, and one more vendor that I lost the name of, and find and report on their vulnerabilities. So by using SNMP and a discovery service on the endpoint, you can get that, okay, we have a Cisco switch. So Cisco, Uniper, Aruba, and Palo Alto. And find that, okay, we have a Cisco switch over here. It runs this version of iOS. It has these vulnerabilities. And that will be visualized and reported on in Defender for Endpoint. Interesting. Mm-hmm. As long as people actually have the SNMP service running. Exactly. And, and I think we can have a lot of arguments if you should or shouldn't have that and what value you can get and why you should be using this and not something else that are more network-centric. But I think this is really, really cool. And now Microsoft is really pushing hard towards especially Cisco, which I've been used doing quite a lot of comparisons with over the last weeks or so. And now, okay, Microsoft now does what Cisco used to do best or at least part of. Interesting. Really, mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah. So I will um, hopefully get back with some quite interesting results from the tests of that. And uh, that was the news. And for me, it, this <laughs> it kind of comes as a surprise. I don't have any more upcoming events until the middle of May. Nice. And I'm so looking forward to some downtime because I've been at it way too, too much lately. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying the fact that I'm not going to be on stage for almost a month. Yeah, and I think that... I think it's the same for me, actually. Uh, I'm not 100% certain, so I need to look into that. But uh, I may have something in the middle of May. Um, Other than that, it's the user groups. But I think it's a well-needed rest. I might actually get to reboot my computer. Mm. Because I don't dare to do that between sessions. (laughs) And I think that's pretty much it for this episode. Yeah, I think so. I think we... um... We have a lot of things that we can continue to talk about. And uh, like I told you, I have three kilos, that's one and a half pounds or something like that, of books coming my way. Yes, it's, books, it's... not drugs. <laughs> no, but I would argue that it's not that big of a difference. Well, that's true. It's not regulated in, in quite the same fashion, though. No. But it's a good point. Well, we, we definitely need to, to end this. And yes, we have a lot to talk about. We need to do that offline. We're going to have to schedule a pizza lunch. <laughs> I'm absolutely up for it. Cool. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and we'll see you back in another two weeks. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. Knee Deep in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson and Simon Binder. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at kneedeepintech.com.